Well, Romans 8, 26 says that we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with us for us with uh, groanings too deep for words. I'm thankful for that because I was informed just now that I prayed that God would help us find a Cantonese, uh, a Mandarin pastor, and I meant uh, that we need to find a Cantonese pastor. So, Pastor Daniel, if you're listening, we're not trying to replace you. We love you. You know that. Uh, we're looking for a Cantonese pastor, not a Mandarin pastor. Uh, thankfully, God knows what I mean, even if Mike Chen doesn't. So, Mike Chen, thanks for letting me know, though. Um, well, with that, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. This is our third week in the book of Exodus now, and I realize that we have not seen one plague yet, not one statement of let my people go, not even a glimpse of the burning bush. What is taking so long? Well, um, I hope you have been encouraged by these opening uh, two chapters of Exodus. We will finish Exodus chapter 2 today. Um, but it, there's, there's a lot going on here in this back-and-forth struggle thus far, that we've been observing this back-and-forth struggle between Israel, the people of God, and Pharaoh, the offspring of the serpent. God blesses the Israelites, so Pharaoh enslaves them. God blesses them even more, so Pharaoh secretly attempts to kill the baby boys through the Hebrew midwives. God blesses the Hebrew midwives for protecting the Hebrew baby boys, and so Pharaoh now openly commands that all newborn boys of the Israelites, of the Hebrews, must be thrown into the Nile River. And yet, even here, we saw last week that God protects. God protects them, and even particularly, he protected one special baby boy, named Moses from drowning in the waters through a basket, through an ark, if you will, just like Noah. And God even arranged for this baby boy to be adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter. So there's this back and forth struggle, this back and forth dynamic. And, and now God has a man inside, an inside man in the palace, living in extravagance. But by the end of our passage today, Moses will be in a very different place. He'll go from the palace to poverty. He'll go from extravagance to exile. But of course, you know that that's not where this story ends. You know that Moses comes back with a staff in his hand and plagues up his sleeve. And, and, and yet, why all this buildup? Why all this backstory? If we come to the Bible with the mindset that the Bible's boring, that it's irrelevant, that it gives way too much excessive and unnecessary detail, then our passage, Exodus 2, verses 11 to 25, won't seem to serve any purpose. It doesn't seem to have any benefit for us if we come at it with that kind of a mindset. But if we come to the scriptures humbly, asking God, why did you put this here? Why did you give this to us? Why did you go into detail about these things? If we go to the scriptures, assuming that God has a purpose, that there is benefit in these things, then you will be on your way. You'll be ready to see wonderful things in God's law. Even as Psalm 119 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. The wonderful things aren't placed in there all of a sudden magically. They were already there. It's just that we need eyes to see them. So I hope that as you read the Bible, you would understand that we are not, uh, that, that we are not approach it as boring, filled with irrelevant 
extraneous detail. Instead, it's, it's given to us in perfection. Everything there is there for a reason, including our passage today. So in our passage today, we're going to follow Moses from the palace to poverty, from extravagance to exile. And as we do so, I want us to see, I want us to be deeply encouraged by the way, by the way that God is at work, by the way that God is at work in the background, behind the scenes. He's at work in spite of and even because of the struggles that Moses goes through the struggles that Israel goes through. So as we, as we see what God did in the past for Moses, I hope that you would discover three ways that God works through our trials. We're going to look at how God did that historically for Moses, but that's going to give us uh, some encouragement. So I want us to see three ways, three ways that God works through our trials. I'll just give them to you up front real briefly here. God proves us through trials God prepares us through trials, and God remembers us in trials. So so the first way that God works through our trials is this. God proves us. He proves us through trials. He demonstrates what's inside us through trials. That's going to be found in verses 11 to 15. Now, before we read that, let me just refresh your memory and set the scene here, right? Uh, Because of the providence of God and the pity of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is saved. He's adopted into the royal family, into the Egyptian royal family. He actually becomes, in, in, in an ironic way, he becomes the legally adopted grandson of the Pharaoh who tried to kill him. Right? And remember, Moses' older sister Miriam was able to arrange to have Moses' mother, his own mother, nurse him and be paid for it. Right, And, and we don't know for sure how long that process was where she nursed him. Uh, it's, it's likely that Moses was raised by his mother in his own home, by, in his family, for the first three to four years of his life. We don't know for sure, but somewhere in that range. And after that, he was brought into the household of Pharaoh's daughter, where he was then educated at the highest levels where he enjoyed the finest things of life. I mean, he was, he was a prince in the most powerful nation on earth. Many years pass by, and then the story picks up again when Moses is 40 years old. It's interesting to notice sometimes that the Bible will slow down and give a bunch of detail in certain areas and then speed up over certain areas. So, so we get a lot about Moses' birth and how he was preserved, and it speeds up for a few decades, and now we come back to Moses when he is 40 years old. And we pick it up here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Let me read that out loud for us. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So one day here, Moses decides to go out and see what it's like for the enslaved Hebrews. 
Apparently, he knows that he was adopted and that he was, in fact, a Hebrew as well. Perhaps it's because he remembers growing up in, in, in his uh, mother's home, or perhaps it's because uh, his adopted mother, the Pharaoh's daughter, kind of explains some of his background. Here's why you maybe look a little bit different. Here's maybe why you remember some things strange happening uh, when you were three or four and you moved to this new home. Uh, whatever the reason, Moses was aware that he was a Hebrew. And he goes out, it says, to his people. He goes out to his people. He identified with them. He knew they were his kin, his flesh and blood. And it says he looked on their burdens. So as he looked upon them, he's going out among his people and he sees their burdens. He sees the affliction, the oppression, and he, he felt a connection with them. He looked on their burdens all of a sudden with a renewed compassion. We don't know for sure. Perhaps he had felt this way or that before, but he had somehow managed to keep it under wraps. But, but this time, this day, he goes out and his heart is stirred. These are my people. These are my people. I see their burden. And not only do I see it in general, kind of the big picture, he looks out and sees they're, they're being oppressed, but then he sees this specific instance where he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Again, it, it, it repeats it, one of his people. There's this emphasis. He is identifying with them. Now, at this point, Moses had two choices. He could turn a blind eye, he could turn a blind eye and continue identifying with the Egyptians and thus continue to enjoy untold, unimaginable riches and luxuries. And how easy would that have been? Uh, I saw it, but you know what? That's not me. That's not my life. Uh, they're not my people anymore. I've been adopted. He, he could have turned a blind eye. That's one choice. The other choice would be to intervene to step in, to identify with the oppressed Hebrews, to identify with his people, and thus forsake, to forsake his royal upbringing, to forsake uh, all of the treasures that he had, and to throw in his lot with the slaves. Those were his choices. And I wonder if, if, if you could just try to imagine being in Moses' shoes, in his sandals, so to speak, what would you do? How would you feel? What would you choose? Have you ever experienced something like this before? Maybe, maybe your boss and your coworkers at work, or maybe your professor, your classmates, or your, your friends, whatever, they, they begin mocking Christians, mocking their backwards and bigoted beliefs. Do you, do you laugh along? <laughs> so as to not rock the boat? so that you can kind of stay on the inside of that group, to stay on the inside track? Or do you speak up and identify with God's people? Now, again, I understand there are delicate and tricky dynamics at work. There's wisdom to be exercised by all means. I understand that. But, but I, I want to ask you, have you ever felt this temptation to forsake God's people for the sake of self-preservation? Obviously, we know from this account that Moses made the hard choice. 
He had a lot to lose, and he put it all on the line. He identified with his people. In fact, verse 12, again, it says, he looked this way and that. I mean, there's some drama to this. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He hid him in the sand. Now, just to be clear here, God did not command Moses to do this or approve necessarily of this murder. This was how Moses responded to the injustice. Moses saw injustice. He saw oppression. He sees this being done to his own people. So he acts. He acts out. He murders this Egyptian. Verse 13 says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So now day two in a row, Moses goes out. This seems like maybe it's going to be a habit now for him. He, he identifies with his people. He wants to go out and see what it's like for them. So he goes out to visit his people. And, and again, he shows concern for justice. He saw the day before. I'm going to face this way for a moment to avoid the wind blowing my mic, but I'm not ignoring you, just protecting the, 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 the wind, all right? He, he has a concern for justice. He, he saw the oppression Yesterday, he goes today, and he sees injustice between two Hebrews, and so he steps in again. But his work is not appreciated. Verse 14, he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Moses, who are you to speak to us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? They were, not a, they were not appreciative of Moses' efforts to settle their disputes. And you can understand why. Here they were breaking their backs out in the Egyptian uh, heat, and he's living the pampered life in the palace. So, so they are not particularly uh, appreciative of Moses' efforts. And Moses realized he'd been found out. He'd been found out. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? He looked this way and that, but apparently he didn't look that other way. He, he was seen. He was found out. And so he became afraid. It says, surely the thing is known. Surely the thing is known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Pharaoh was enraged that this adopted Hebrew son, this adopted Hebrew grandson, rather, would dare to kill an Egyptian. So Moses runs. He flees. Forty years uh, thereabouts almost in, in the palace. One afternoon, he kills an Egyptian out of compassion for his countrymen, and now he has to flee. He has to leave the only home he's ever known, not just to leave Egypt, but even to leave his people. He flees to the land of Midian. Now, just by the way, interestingly, Moses flees to the land of Midian. The Midianites were actually related to the Israelites, they were descendants of Abraham through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. After uh, Sarah died, Abraham took a, another wife, Keturah, and uh, the Midianites came through that marriage. And it was actually, interestingly enough, the Midianites who sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, which set off this whole chain of events that led Israel into Egypt. So the Midianites were responsible, in a sense, for on a human level for Israel ending up in Egypt. But now the Midianites give Moses refuge as Moses flees from Egypt. And of course, later in Israel's history, the Midianites end up becoming enemies of God's people. So there's this kind of on-again, off-again relationship with the Midianites. Here they are helping Moses. 
Now, in this first chapter here, what, 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 do we, what do we learn? What lessons do we learn from this? And I would submit to you that God proves us through trials, through difficulties. God proved, God showed, God demonstrated the character of Moses through these events. Uh, uh, first, here's one praiseworthy aspect of Moses that we see in this. He treasured Christ above all things. He treasured Christ above all things. Remember that, that choice he had to make between identifying with his people or turning a blind, or, or yeah, turning a blind eye. He had a choice to make, but it wasn't quite so simple and straightforward. He actually understood more than we perhaps give him credit for. If you keep a finger here in the book of Exodus and turn all the way near the end of your Bibles to Hebrews 11, you're going to see something very interesting. Hebrews 11 is oftentimes known as the hall of faith. We Christians love cheesy things like that, myself included. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith where God's word highlights the, the amazing faith of his people in times past. And Moses is highlighted here in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, look at verses 23 and 26, uh, 23 to 26 rather. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, now listen to this, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than wealth, a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He looked at his life filled with pleasure, filled with ease, filled with comfort and luxury, and he said, this is all fleeting. This is passing away. This is, this is steam coming off a cup of coffee. This is here today, gone tomorrow. It's passing. I would rather be mistreated with God's people. Why? Because he was looking forward to the reward. He was looking forward to the reward of God. He would even, as Hebrews 11 says, he was considering the reproach for the sake of Christ to be more valuable than the, the riches and treasures of Egypt. He knew from the little bit, from the little bit he knew, perhaps his, his mom taught him when he was young, perhaps he kind of knew as, as prince in Egypt, he perhaps learned a little bit about the Hebrew culture. He knew enough to know that God is worth it. He knew enough to know that God is faithful. Today, we have far, we have far more revelation. We have far more understanding of God's promises, the specifics of his promises than Moses had. We know far more about what Christ did for us. We know far more about the reward to come. Yeah, brothers and sisters, let's, let's look ahead to the reward that we know even better than Moses did and not be tempted by the meager, fleeting treasures of this life. Like whatever is tempting you, whatever is pulling you away from Christ, whatever seems shinier to you than the glories of heaven is fake, is fading, is passing, is perishable. So Moses made up his mind to identify with God's people, to suffer with God's people for the sake of Christ. Friend, have you made that choice? Have you resolved in your heart today 
that when that opportunity shows itself to you, that you will side with God's people, you will side with Christ no matter the cost. Uh, we, we need to be wise here. We are living in a time when there's a, a huge cultural transformation, which I'm sure you are aware of. Being a Christian, being one who believes in God's word is not going to be praiseworthy, is not going to be acceptable. If your goal in life is to be liked, then you will not remain a Christian. If your goal in life is to be liked, to succeed, to get the praises of man, you're, you're in for a rude awakening. We have to settle in our hearts today, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it? It's Philippians 1.29. Paul says this, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. There's this idea of gift in that word. It's been gifted to you, granted to you. It's a grace gift to you that you get to believe in Jesus. But there's a two-parter to this gift. He says, not only to believe in him, but it's also been granted to you that you would suffer for him. This should not be a surprise. If you want to follow Christ, it will not be easy there will be a cost, but it is worth it, friends. It's later on in Philippians 3 that Paul says, I consider all things to be lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's worth it. He's worth it. And Moses knew that. Moses saw that. He started out in the palace, and he chose to be mistreated with God's people. He chose to give that up. He had access to more riches than any of us could ever imagine. I mean, if, if your riches compare to that a little bit, talk to me later. I'd like to get in on that. But no, we, we, we can't even compare. We can't even imagine what, would, what it would be like to be a prince of that country, of Egypt, the most powerful, richest nation on the planet at that time, and he gave it up to follow God, to be with God's people. Not only do we see this lesson from Moses' life, that he treasured Christ above all things, we also see that these trials showed that Moses had a concern for justice. He had a concern for what is right. He had a concern for what is right. And, and again, the New Testament shed some light on this for us. If you turn a little bit to the left from Hebrews to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, the first martyr, talking about Moses in his sermon. Acts 7, verse 17 to 29. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 17. And this is just kind of interesting. It gives us a little bit more uh, context, a little bit more understanding, a, a full perspective on what's going on here. Acts 7, starting in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near. Remember, God had promised to Abraham, your descendants will have this land, but they're going to be enslaved first for, for 400 years, and they'll come back to this place. So, so verse 17 says, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Speaking of the Nile, 
Verse 20, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, when he was thrown into the river, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man. He defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Did you catch how Stephen described the situation? He said that, Moses saw one of them being wronged, and he defended the oppressed. He defended the, the, the one who was oppressed. And he supposed that he was bringing salvation. He, he supposed that they would understand, don't you see, I'm here to rescue you. Stop resisting. I'm here to save you. I'm here to protect you. I'm here to deliver you. Don't you understand that? Perhaps Moses knew about the promise that God had given to, to Moses, perhaps uh, to, to Abraham, rather. Perhaps he knew the promise. Perhaps he knew that the time for deliverance was coming, the time to throw off the shackles of slavery was coming, that they'd come back to their land in Canaan. Perhaps he knew. Uh, he supposed that the Israelites would understand. Don't you know God has put me here for this purpose at this time that I might save you by my hand? He had a concern for the oppressed. He had a concern for righteousness. He had a concern for justice. He had a heart of compassion. He could not turn a blind eye. These trials brought out and showed Moses' character in a special way, but but perhaps you picked up on it. Moses not only showed a concern for justice, he not only showed that he valued Christ, but he also had this streak of self-reliance. He had this streak of self-reliance. He supposed they would understand that he was giving them deliverance. He was saving them by his hand. No, Moses, you will not save them by your hand. Your efforts will not do. Your self-reliance will not do. You may be educated in Egypt, you may be mighty in words and deeds, but it will not be up to you. You cannot do it, Moses. The most you can do is murder one Egyptian, hide him in the sand, and you can't even do that right. Moses failed because he relied upon himself. In his pride, he thought he could do this in his own strength, in his own way. He took matters into his own hands. But again, salvation would not come through Moses' hand, but through God's. And so these trials revealed good. It revealed Moses' love for God, his willingness to forsake the riches of Egypt. It also revealed his concern for justice and for the oppressed. It also, though, sadly revealed a pride, a self-reliance, a self-sufficiency in Moses. And this would have to be remedied if Moses would be useful to God. And so 
The second way, the second way that God works through our trials, the first way is that he proves us through his trials, but the second way that God works through our trials, through our difficulties, is that God prepares us through trials. God prepares us through trials. You know, when you think of a piece of gold, if you apply heat to it, you apply fire to it, that fire kind of proves the quality and worth of that gold. As it, as it melts down, the impurities rise up. It reveals what's in the gold, but it also helps purify that gold. And so in the same way, God is using these trials to, to prove what is in the man Moses, but also to purify, to prepare the man Moses for what God would do. So God prepares us through trials. Look back at Exodus chapter 2. Back to Exodus chapter 2, verse six, verses 16 and 17. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Just imagine, if you're Moses, one minute ago you were a prince You had it all, and the next moment you are running for your life. You are in the desert. You're in the wilderness. You're in this place called Midian. You sit down by a well, and you are exhausted, and you are, you're, you're depressed. You're discouraged. What happened? And you see these, these girls come up with these sheep. They're trying to water their flocks, and then this gang of bully shepherds. This gang of bully shepherds comes up and starts bothering them, starts harassing them. Now, if I was Moses, I'd be like, yo, I just tried to save somebody else, and I got nothing out of it. It did not go well for me. Sorry, girls, you take care of yourself. I'm all done with the rescuing the oppressed business. No more. If I was Moses, I'd have a sense of self-pity. I'd have a sense of self-preservation. Forget it. I'm not doing this thing. I'm one man. There's a, a group of shepherds harassing these girls. Leave me out of it. But instead, Moses couldn't stand it. He, he sees this, again, this oppression. He sees these, these girls being harassed by these shepherds. And so he stood up and drove them away. He rescued these girls. We see still Moses continues to care for the weak and the oppressed. Good for Moses. Good for Moses. That, that kind of a heart is going to be very important for him, wouldn't it? It doesn't stop there, though. So there's this act of kindness from Moses, verse 18 to 22. It continues on. When, when they came home, when the girls came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherd and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he, Reuel, gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. So Moses is this refugee. He's run out of Egypt. He's in exile. He's a foreigner in the land. They mistake him for an Egyptian. He still looks like an Egyptian, perhaps was dressed like an Egyptian. They said, this Egyptian man saved us. And as is common in that day, there's this, this culture of hospitality. Uh, Reuel says, hey, you better go call him. Tell him to come. He, he delivered you all. Let, let him eat bread with us. Have him come stay with us. And Moses was pleased to dwell with the man. He was pleased to stay there. Uh, this man, Reuel, he's the high priest of Midian. 
Uh, he also goes by another name. In the Old Testament, many people have m- multiple names. So Reuel, that, that name literally means friend of God. He's also the high priest of Midian. You perhaps know him by another name, Jethro. Jethro. And so it's interesting. You, you put yourself in Moses' shoes here. He began this chapter. Moses was in a palace, and now he's a fugitive in a faraway land. But God is still carrying him along. He happens to be at this well. He happens to protect these girls. He happens to be brought into this, to this home, into this family. He happens to then be given a wife, Zipporah. Certainly his life is a far cry from what it used to be, but he's got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of peace. His life is settling down once again. He's taken in, but, but then you see what, what happens next. Not only does he have a wife, Zipporah, verse 22 she gave birth to a son, and he, Moses, he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. He called his son's name Gershom, for I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Names mean something in the Old Testament. Names mean something, uh, hence Moses' name. I drew him out of the water. Here he names his son Gershom, because I'm a foreigner. I'm a sojourner. Yes, I've been brought into this family. Yes, I have a wife. Yes, I even now have a son. Uh, he ends up living in the land of Midian in exile as a fugitive for 40 years. I mean, just imagine, 40 years he's living out there. And after 40 years, he has a, he has a son, but he still says, no, I'm still a foreigner. I'm still a sojourner. I'm a man without a home. I'm a man without a home. He's no longer a prince. Now he's a humble sojourner. He's settling down. He's kind of accepting his lot in life. While he's out there, he, was, he had saved uh, these girls. Probably Zipporah was among them. He saved them uh, from these other shepherds because they themselves were shepherds. And so now Moses takes over this task of being a shepherd. He becomes a shepherd of sheep. He leads these sheep through the wilderness, bringing them to water and giving them, giving them grass to eat. He's no longer a prince. Now he's a humble, sojourning shepherd. But perhaps you already see why this would be important. It would take a man of great humility to lead God's people. Moses would be the lawgiver. He would be, in a sense, God's mouthpiece to his people. That'll go to your head. So Moses had to be humbled. He had to understand what it was like to be on the outside, what it was like to be a sojourner. And also he learned how to be a shepherd, to lead, to lead sheep through the wilderness. And that would help him to eventually lead God's people through the wilderness. This was by no accident. God had brought Moses out to the wilderness to humble him, to prepare him, to train him so that he would be useful, so that he would be useful. Friends, I hope you understand this. As you consider Moses' life, as you consider God's preparation of Moses, God can use us in spite of our failures. I want to make sure you understand that. When you look at Moses' life, he's a, he's a murderer who ran away from home. He's living by himself, and God says, no, I can use you in spite of that. I can use you in spite of that. It's, it's interesting. When you go through the Bible, every it's seemingly every Old Testament st- saint is stained in some way, is marked by sin, even great sin. It's as if the Bible goes out of its way 
to tarnish the reputation of every Old Testament saint to, to show you that, that even the Old Testament saints are not saved by their righteousness, they're not saved by being good, they're all fallen. I remember listening to a pastor say that he had asked a non-believing friend to start reading through the Bible with him, and after this friend had finished reading the book of Genesis, he said, so yeah, tell me what you think. And he said, well, I read Genesis, and I don't, I don't like any of those people. They're all terrible. Well, yeah, they are. God uses broken people. God uses spiritual failures. He uses sinners. God can use us in spite of our failures. And, and maybe I can twist it and say it a different way. God can use us because of our failures. God can use us because of our failures. Perhaps while Moses was, was in the palace, he was too high, too mighty, too proud to be used by God. Perhaps he would have to be broken. Perhaps he'd have to be humbled like a, like a wild uh, horse, a wild stallion that, that is useless for man because he's not yet been broken. All this power, all this strength can't be used until that horse is broken. Then, then that power comes under control. It can be directed, can be used. Moses had to be humbled. God uses us in spite of our failures. Oftentimes, God uses us because of our failures, because of our weaknesses. That's, that's the way God loves to work. He, he loves to choose the weak, the, 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 the one who has no reputation. He loves to choose the foolish so that he gets the glory, so that he gets the glory. I mean, sometimes when we're tempted to be proud, like, ha, God uses me. It's like, well, you remember God uses the weak, right? God uses the foolish. God uses the things that are not to shame the things that are wise, to shame the things that are strong. That's how God loves to work. If you're guessing who God might use, a, a prince in a palace or a failure in a foreign land, I would have gone with the prince, but God says, no, 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 no. This one. This one who understands what it is to be a sojourner, who understands what it is to be an exile, this one is the one I will use. He had to be broken. God says in 2 Corinthians, he, he loves to display his power through these jars of clay. We're, we're, these, we're earthen vessels. We're jars of clay so that the power of the gospel is seen. It's, it's not in us. It's not, it's, it's not that we're so great. It's, we're just jars of clay, but the, the gospel is what's powerful. The gospel is what's powerful. The gospel is what's good. So that God gets the glory, not us. So how does God work through our trials? He works through our trials by proving us through those trials, by preparing us through those trials. And lastly, briefly here, God remembers us in trials. God remembers us in trials. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of rescue, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Verse 23 there says there's a new Pharaoh, but same problems. There's no relief for God's people. So for the first time in the book of Exodus, perhaps they cried out at other times. We don't have that recorded for us. For the first time in Exodus, it says here, the people cried out for help, and this cry for help came up to God. 
Interestingly, I don't want to read too much into this, but it is interesting here. It doesn't say they cried out to God. They just cried out for help. Somebody, anybody in this cry came up and it, and it came to God. God was listening. God was listening. Even though it, it doesn't sound like they particularly were crying out to God. They weren't particularly crying out to God to keep his promises, but God had remembered his promises and God would keep them. God heard. God listened. And so it says in verse 24, it's these, these, these verbs that just come one after another. There's something so beautiful about this. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. For 400 years, Israel had been enslaved. For 400 years, they were wondering, where is God? And God was at work in the background, and now God is getting ready to step forward. He heard their prayers. Even when they didn't know how to cry out to him, he heard. He remembered his promises. What does it mean that God remembers? I mean, this is just so interesting. Some of you who maybe were in the Wednesday night study a couple weeks ago, we talked about this briefly. God is omniscient. He can't forget, right? If God forgets anything, he ceases to be omniscient. He ceases to be God. God knows all things, so he cannot forget. So what does it mean for an omniscient God to remember? For God to remember means that he acts on what he knows. He acts on what he knows to be true. In Genesis, when when Noah was in the ark and they were on the floodwaters, it says that God remembered Noah. It's not like he forgot about him. I mean, there were only eight people left alive in the world. When it says that God remembered Noah, it meant that he remembered the promise and he was going to act on it. He was going to act on what he knew, act on what he had said. He was going to act on his promises. And so God remembered his promises. He remembered his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He promised him, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you so that you'd be a blessing to the whole world. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I remember that promise. I remember it. And now I'm going to act. I'm going to act. He remembered his promise. But it's not just that he remembers his promise in some cold way, like, oh, I guess I signed myself to that contract. I better do it. No, it said he saw their pain. He saw their pain, and God knew. And it's so interesting. It doesn't say God knew their pain. He knew their sorrows. He knew their cries. It didn't say that he knew them and their names or whatever. It just says he knew. There's just this breadth, this, this blanket statement, God knew. What did he know? He knew everything. He had not been far off. He had been present this whole time. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. There is an intimacy here. There's a closeness here. There's a, there's a personalness to this. Do you, do you feel it? Do you sense that? This chapter ends with so much hope. There is hope beyond hope here because God now is in the picture. He had been working behind the scenes, behind the curtains. He's doing stuff. He's pulling strings. He's getting things ready. And now the moment has come. He, it's, it's, it's ready. The time has come for him to pull back the curtains and say, here's what we're going to do. He had not been absent. He had not been gone. He'd been planning this all along. 
You know, it's, it's interesting. Israel was in slavery for 400 years. For 400 years. And they didn't know exactly how or when God was going to deliver them. I mean, certainly they, they should have known from his promise to Abraham, but it seems many of them forgot. For 400 years, they were suffering as a people. Moses would go on to be in, in exile in Midian for 40 years himself. 40 years. Feeling like he had been disappointed by God. Cast out. We get to stand on this side of things, and we know that God was at work all along. God was doing something all along. They didn't know. Israel didn't know. Moses didn't know. We get to sit here, and we have the, we have the, uh, the luxury of knowing these things and saying, well, just hold tight, Moses. Hold tight, Israel. God's coming. But for them, they didn't know. And I wonder, I wonder how that should impact the way we think about our lives. Some of you are going through trials and burdens that no one else knows. Some of you have gone through so much pain physically, emotionally, spiritually. Some of you have gone through so many things that are so hard. You don't even want to talk about it with others because it's so painful. And you wonder, God, how long? Why have you done this? Why have you left me alone for this long? An unanswered prayer. A longing for, for marriage. A longing for children. A longing for something in your life to be fixed. For a loved one to be saved. There's something that's been chewing on you and you say, God, how long? How long? God knows. God hears. God sees. God remembers. They didn't know exactly how long it would be, but we get to look at Moses' situation, at Israel's situation, we know. And so then in our situation, we might not know the day, the month, the year, but we know that God is faithful. We know that God is good. We know that his word is sure. We, we know more about the promises of God than, than Moses did. And we know the payment has already been made, that Jesus already died on the cross for us. And if God has given us his son, he's not going to withhold anything else from us. In fact, he's given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment of the promises. He's going to fulfill all that he has promised. He will finish everything that he has started. God remembers us in trials. He, he proves us in trials. He prepares us in trials. He prepares us to do works for him that we might bring him praise and glory and honor. But, but he's not just doing things through us. He's doing things in us and for us. He remembers us. He remembers us in trials. Friends, we, we have a lot that we can learn from Moses. And not just from Moses, really, we have a lot that we can learn from God of what he has done for his people. My prayer and my hope is that we as a people, myself included, that we as a people would learn to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God despite what trials and tribulations we may face. I hope Moses, his... his Exile in the wilderness would be an example and an encouragement to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the privilege of, of knowing you, the privilege of knowing your promises, of knowing your word, of having hope and assurance. Father, I pray, God, that you would minister to hearts, that you would minister to those who are hurting, who are broken. God, we thank you that you use the broken, that you use those with a broken heart and yet a united heart, a heart that's united to fear you, to praise you, and to live for you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you'd help us to forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin and instead to consider the reproaches of Christ to be greater riches than anything this world can offer. Help us to trust you in and through whatever trials we face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.